Hey girl, hey! Hey boy, hey! Hey fellow podcasters, I'm Queen B. I'm Tori. And I'm Cass. Do you enjoy true crime stories? Or maybe you enjoy a good mystery. Or perhaps you love a thrilling, spooky story that keeps you awake at night. Then join us every week as we take you on a wild, thrill-seeking adventure and let's get paranoid. Where three friends band together to talk about many different topics involving true crime, serial killers, conspiracy theories, and more. Let's face it, these are pretty common topics for us, so why not make a podcast about it and share it with you? Okie dokie, let's get paranoid. Okay, so it's my turn. I'm excited. Um, I don't know why I'm excited. It's about a serial killer. Should not be excited, but I am. Like Beth, I had to do a college paper. Mine had to be six pages. We weren't allowed to go over six pages. But knowing me and my rebellious state, I did one line extra. So I had six pages and one line. I didn't get any points deducted, thank God. But anyways, okay. So mine is about Joseph D'Angelo Jr., Um, Many people know him as the Golden State Killer. Many of us are able to reflect back on 1970s and 80s, feeling a sense of calm and tranquility. I don't know about you guys, but, like, I trust my neighbors. I leave my windows and doors unlocked. Not that I should announce that. Um, But, like, back then, that was normal. You can just leave them open and unlocked. You didn't have to worry about anything. Like, nowadays... You know, there's break-ins all the time. Burglaries and robberies were few and far between. And rapes and murders were pretty much barely ever heard of. However, if you lived in California during these times, you weren't privileged to that peaceful feeling. Instead, you were constantly looking over your shoulders and double-checking your locks. People all over the state lived in fear every day. And that anxiety only grew as each night fell. With crime skyrocketing all over the Golden State, people looked to the police to help them, not knowing that one of their trusted officials was the reason behind their nightmares. That trusted official would later be known as Joseph D'Angelo Jr., who was finally arrested in 2018 and charged with 13 counts of first-degree murder as well as 13 counts of kidnapping, which... Quite honestly, I feel like that wasn't enough. Of course, nobody's born a serial killer. You'll hear me say this many times. I don't want to say I feel bad for serial killers, but like I feel bad for the way they were raised. Most of the time, they have a really troubling childhood. Um, if you dive deep into their childhood of most of the serial killers, you will find an unstable childhood filled with series of abuse and neglect. Born in 1945, Joseph D'Angelo Jr. was the son of Kathleen D. Grote and Army Sergeant Joseph D'Angelo Sr. He also had two sisters, Rebecca and Connie, and a brother, John, all who fell victim to various types of abuse at the hands of their parents. As children, it is human nature to look to your parents for love and comfort, 
but they were met with the complete opposite on multiple occasions. And their father would lock them in a closet for several hours, and just as they left them out, the beatings would begin. Joseph was usually the main focus of the abuse. Food would also be deprived from their growing bodies, leaving them malnourished. You guys are not talking and it feels weird. We're listening though. I'm left listening. Isn't it interesting how so many of these serial killers have that abuse in their background? It's actually pretty common. I actually didn't know any, like, I didn't, usually when the podcast I've listened to about Joseph D'Angelo, nobody's ever gone over his eye, like his background, like his childhood. They just like go on and tell like crime spree that he goes on doing. So it's actually interesting to hear. It's actually interesting that like, while I was doing my research paper, that was one of the things that I really wanted to cover. And it was really hard to find anything on him. Before he started killing, which is he yeah. was he was the one that they found him through the DNA from genealogy. Yes, right. That's so that's that's probably how they found you found information on the abuse in the background because um, looking back the genealogy aspect of it. That's a good point. Okay. Due to their father's job, they moved around a lot, allowing the abuse to go almost undetected. While sta- stationed in Germany, at the age of nine, Joseph witnessed his younger sister being raped by some of the military men there on base. And of course, you know, he's nine, so he's pretty much helpless. He's watching us go on with his sister. And like, I hope those guys are court-martialed. Were they court-martialed? Do you know? Did you find out? I did not see anything about it. I don't even know if they had a name. I think it was more him telling his side of the story. Which, you know... How old was his sister when he was nine? Uh, well... I'm not sure if they were older or younger... Oh my god, I hope it wasn't younger, but then, you know, nine is still young too, so. Regardless, like, I can only imagine sitting there at the age of nine watching that happen to your sister. And, like, he's already been beaten down by his parents, so the confidence that he needed to stand up was probably, like, little to none. Anger built up inside young Joseph, leading him to torture and kill small animals. Eventually, the family moved to California, where Joseph finished middle school and high school, and then later enlisted in the U.S. Navy. That's interesting that he killed animals. A lot of serial killers do that, too. They start with abuse of small animals, and then they move to human beings. Of course, back then, that Mm -hmm. probably wasn't really connected. I don't think they had as many studies or... Mm -hmm. um, no, because remember, psychology. psychology was young and abnormal psych was young and all these disorders, like, you know, people were just finding out about them and researching them. So, um, you know, and of course, this guy, he didn't like become like he was like free for what, 20, 30, 40 years. Yeah. So um, all this research happened while before and while he was actively serial killing i mean you're talking about like 
the 50s here. Not a lot of mental health itself was discovered. I don't want to say discovered. It was discovered. It probably reported either that animal abuse or killing animals was reported as much because they, we don't have, they didn't have the animal, you know, laws that we have now, the animal abuse laws that we have now. That's true. Okay, so during the Vietnam War, Joseph was on the board of the USS Canberra. I think that's how you say it. C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A. As a damage control man. Now, I did some research into what that really meant, but I had to delete it off of my um, page because I was, you know, well over six pages. But... It was pretty much, like, in an emergency situation. So you got all that cortisol just, like, pumping through you constantly. But his job would be to, like, fix the pipes and all this crazy stuff, like, under pressure, under fire. So, like, just imagine the cortisol running through his body constantly. Oh, so this kind of prepared him for when he was serial killing because... When your say, body yeah. when your body gets used to having that high level of cortisol, that's that becomes your baseline, right. and so that made him easier to function when he was active right. under high stress. Now I don't know how long he was he was the damage control man, but um, after his years of service, he enrolled in college and earned a degree in criminal justice of all things by 1973 so oh my gosh that's so brian koberger ish wow oh my gosh interesting i'm gonna pretend like i know who that brian is brian koberger that's uh, the idaho four brian koberger he uh allegedly is accused yeah he's going to uh, he has a hearing tomorrow actually oh that's that guy that yeah. The college students. Uh-huh. They just had a documentary out about him where they said that they believe he was Papa Rogers. This isn't okay. a, this we're, isn't we're getting, an episode we're about Bronco. Yeah, right let's, let's move because yeah, we don't want to talk about BK. And- yes, okay. So by 1973, the California Police Department hired D'Angelo and his life seemed to be going in the right direction. After landing the job with the police department, Joseph fell in love and married Susan Huddle. Sharon Huddle. What are you wagging your finger for? My cat. Oh, you just jacked. He keeps putting his paw up at me. Oh. Please. He wants. I'm surprised he's not crying because. Look away from him. Look away from him for. Three seconds too long. He's crying. Mm. When you get home from work or whatever, and he goes, "Hello." Hello. Okay. Yeah. So Joseph fell in love and married Sharon Huddle. At the age of twenty, Huddle was studying her career in law, which is kind of how she met Joseph. They were on similar career paths. The two headed off pretty quickly, marrying in the fall of 1973 at the Auburn First Con... I can't say the word. They'll be celebrating their 50th wedding anniversary this year. How lovely. How lovely. However, 
No. So, fun fact, I was listening to another podcast, and they interviewed his ex-brother-in-law, so her brother, and um, she wants absolutely nothing to do with, like, any of the paparazzi or, like, you know, newscasters. She doesn't want to talk about it at all. Sorry. Good girl. Go, girl. Yeah, drop that like it's hot. Getting into drop it like it's hot. Okay, that blissful feeling was only satisfied for so long, and within a year, Joseph began his criminal career. Coincidentally, while working with the police department, Joseph was assigned to the burglary department. (laughs) How coincidental. Wow, what a foreshadowing. So, while he investigated home invasions, he was, like, not not literally, but, like, writing in a little notebook all these, like, little ideas. It's like criminal college for yes. a serial killer. So, with his knowledge from these crimes, he began performing his own burglaries and getting away with them undetected. 11 That's miles. Because he had... Yeah, Sorry. he had he the had, knowledge. That was like inside knowledge. Yes. Yes, he had, he had what to do, what not to do, how to do this, how to do that. How interesting. Now, remember back in those days, they didn't have DNA. Right. So, you know, if he had left, uh, you know, like a, um, a hair or saliva or something, they had no method back then to test it. So, I mean, they might have kept it they might not have kept it because they didn't have any means of identifying it so well please continue another fun fact um i'm not sure if i wrote it in my paper or if i just read it i don't know but he actually wore a different ski mask he wore gloves and like he prepared himself different exits throughout the house and he would set up um, like little booby traps throughout the house that if they went off, he knew that somebody was awake in the house and he would get outside of one of his exits. So, oh my like, gosh, so he staked out. He would pretend to be like your cable repairman or like something like that to get inside your home. And he would take when, notes. When did he have the time to do this with like working as a police officer and? You know, having a, a wife and he responsibilities. Chopped, he chopped it up as he was just doing routine checks. Like, you know, checking on people's safety and whatnot. I don't know. You get to think, like, that time was different than our time. Obviously, if Dylan was, like, out until, like, 3 o'clock in the morning, I would question it. Or, you know, if our credit card statement showed that he was buying ski masks every other day i would question it but well they didn't have credit cards back in those days right or a check for everything and a lot of job a lot of places weren't open 24 hours either but you know dylan doesn't have a job where like a police officer like he would be on call 24 7 so if she expected her husband to be out and about she expected her husband to be working not you know going to walmart Right. Nefarious act. Okay, so... Where was I? 
Using the knowledge from these crimes, he began performing his own burglaries and getting away. I already read this, didn't I? Yeah. Eleven miles away in the town called Valissa, I think that's how you pronounce it, he began breaking into people's homes with over 120 recorded break-ins within a three-year span. From 1973 to 1976, he coined the nickname the Facilla Ransacker. And of course, I'm probably saying the town name wrong, but we're rolling with it. Of course, nobody expected that nickname to belong to a police officer enlisted in the burglary department. Each one of these break-ins was well thought out and planned prior to the attack itself. There we go. I did put it in my paper. He would know the layout of your house and whether you had a dog or if you lived alone. He accomplished all of this prior to entering your home. Once inside, he would open multiple windows and door, therefore leaving multiple options as to how to leave the house in a hurry if need be. He also placed items near the bedrooms of the victims and that would signal him if they were to wake up like you know if you put a a ball next to it or whatever and it it moved he would know like hey i need to get out of the house as if that wasn't enough prior planning he also wore gloves to hide fingerprints and different ski masks at each attack and then destroyed them after each crime to get rid of any evidence so there's like no trace of like any evidence left behind pretty much at first at least once becoming comfortable with his crimes joseph began staying inside the homes for hours with multiple trigger object objects placed around the house to alert him of the homeowners waking up while inside the house he would go through the woman's clothes or other personal items that held high value or importance which as I was typing this up, I was thinking, like, what if he was doing that as, like, gifts for his wife? Like, oh, honey, I got you this nice leather jacket or whatever. Sometimes they do that when they take trophies and things. You know, there was, um, I forget what serial killer it was, but he would bring items home. Um, he had, like, a stepdaughter, this one episode of something I watched, and it was like he brought a cassette home of you know, popular music of that time and gave it to a stepdaughter here that cassette belonged to one of his murder victims. There's also one where he gave the shirts of his victims to his girlfriend or child or... That's just so creepy, like... I wonder if it's like, you know, they play that record or they wear that t-shirt and it's like reminding them of the small victory that they got. Right. Or do they Absolutely. like on like seeing like their loved one wearing that shirt or that piece of jewelry or you know that song brings them back to the sights and smells and sounds of like that gore. It's disgusting. It is. Um Oddly enough, he was not interested in the victim's money, which was kind of strange. Once done within the house, he would rearrange items, like small items, just to mess with the homeowner's head. Like, 
you know, rearrange your shelf to look a different way or whatever. Something that the homeowner would notice. But when filing a police report, they'll be like, are you sure you didn't just misplace that? Like, he was messing with them. Sometimes he would even... One time I came home... Sorry. Go ahead. One time I came home from work and I had a candle in my room that was lit. And I have no recollection of lighting it, nor does Christopher. That's weird. Spooky. Okay. Sometimes he would victimize more than one house in a night, which, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's pretty exhausting. With most crimes, the perpetrator will only escalate if they go undetected. The thrill of not being caught causes them to vamp up their crime spree because they're able to get away with it for so long and it becomes boring or, like, unchallenging to them. Sure enough, this was the case for Joseph. By November of 1974... He went from breaking into one or two houses a day to 12 different homes in one day. Crazy. He even broke into his childhood home more than once. Which I kind of found interesting because, like, that's where most of his abuse happened. So I wonder if that was, like, his way of regaining some kind of control for him. I don't don't know. Yeah. Like, why choose your childhood home, the place that held most of your trauma to begin with? By fall of 1975, he began sexually assaulting and murdering the victims within his homes that he broke into. To D'Angelo's surprise, in September of 1975, a man named Claude Snelling was sleeping within one of the homes and woke up to find his 16-year-old daughter being kidnapped by the Velissa ransacker. This surprised D'Angelo, as this was something that he had not experienced before. As a result, Snelling was gunned down and killed in front of his daughter. This was believed to be the beginning of his murders, and within a month, Joseph... Didn't you, like, chase him? What's that? Did chase him down the road? I think... Right? It was accidental, right? I think he, like, chased him out of the house. From what I read, it was, like, on his front lawn that he got killed. Oh. And to think, like, in front of his daughter. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear, like, her recount of her story. Um... Within a month, Joseph attacked a mother and her two daughters within their home, tying them up and assaulting them individually. Again, he's, like, messing with the victims. Like, I don't know who he would have assaulted first, but, like, the other two had to watch and knew that it was coming for them next. So it's, like, just another pinch of salt. I don't know. People began to live in fear, and as a result, $4,000 was offered as a result or as a reward for the capture of this evil monster. To put that in perspective, with inflation, this is equivalent to $31,490 today. Oh my god. Yeah. By December of the same year, D'Angelo attempted to break into a house in the Velissa area 
that was under police surveillance at the same time for like other reasons. So, like, so, wait, did he know that? Did no, you know it was under surveillance? No, because it was a different police department. And you got to think, like, back then, a lot of police departments didn't really communicate with each other. Which is kind of their biggest downfall in this case. Right. So they never found him? They never caught him during that time period? Or so, did, they, so, did they make an excuse for why he was there or something? So... Uh, the, de- the detective stalking the house saw Joseph as he was carrying items away from the house and quickly, you know, reacted to it. Holding Joseph at gunpoint, he reveals himself to the detective. So he takes his ski mask off and was like looking this detective straight in the face. Um, and the detective didn't, didn't wonder why this man's wearing a ski mask, even though he had a badge. He probably didn't see the badge. Like, this, you know, he took the police the hat, police department hat off. And he's now the ransacker hat. So he's like, you know. He takes his ski mask off. The detective's like, you know, it's dark. So what he did get to see of him probably wasn't a lot. But... As Joseph takes his mask off, he pulls out his own weapon and shoots the officer before fleeing the scene. Surprisingly, the detective was able to survive, but due to poor lighting, he was unable to get a clear look at Joseph's face. He did, you know, get with a sketch artist, and if you look at the sketch artist's examples on, like, Google and stuff, it's very similar. All his... All the sketches are so similar to how he looked. Joseph's first recorded rape was in 1976, and it didn't take long after that for him to be nicknamed the East Area Rapist. In these days, it was pretty common for the police departments to not share information with neighboring counties and states, making it possible for his crimes in Sacramento County to not be easily connected to the crimes he committed in Basilla. Which was a very common problem back then for many different cases. Um, with you said about the East Area Rapist sketches, and these all look like different men. They do, but if you look at pictures of him at that same time frame, he looks like that sketch, if that makes sense. The one, yes. The, uh, there's... So, I'm seeing three, and two of them I don't think look like him at all, but the one definitely. Yeah. Yeah, some of the sketches are, like, just, I don't know, it's creepy. But it's funny because that podcast that I was listening to with the interview from her, from his ex-brother-in-law, um, the police called him when they found out who the east area rapist was um i think they referred to him as the golden state killer and he's like who's that like they even to this day people didn't connect the east area rapist the golden state killer and the vasilla ransacker together they didn't know it was all the same person so like it's just nuts to think that even to this day people didn't know that He's also known as the Night Stalker. 
the original Night Stalker. Yeah, he had different names. As as his his crimes changed and become more and more violent, his names changed. Right. So he's he's named different things in different counties and nobody was like I wonder if this is the same person. Like they cuz nobody communicated well, with each other. There was discussion that they thought he was a construction worker or somebody who worked um that way because he would go up and down the coast of California and so they never quite knew like where he would attack next. Right. I'll get into some of that here in a little bit. Within three years, he would assault and rape over 40 women. Some of his youngest victims were only 13 years old and alone in the house at the time of the assault. Eventually, he moved to households with multiple people in the house at the same time. He especially loved to terrorize couples. Like something about a man and a woman in love he did not like. And I don't know if it was like a reflection of his mom and dad or what. But this challenge became thrilling to him. And so began his lust for more cruelty. Oftentimes, he would have the female victim tie up the male partner, reserving his energy for the attack that was yet to come. With the male tied up, dishes were placed on their backs, and they were forced to remain still. If the dishes rattled, even like in the slightest little sound, the woman that was being sexually assaulted would be killed in front of the male. And mentally, this broke the male figures down to becoming helpless as they watched their wife being raped. Again, he's messing with people's heads. Like, that's kind of his thing from the beginning. Men felt helpless, and if they moved to save their wife, they would both be killed, leaving him no choice but to lay still and listen to the sound of his loved one screaming and crying. Some may say that... That just sounds awful. It does. I couldn't imagine, like, your first instinct would be go to help your loved one, but, like, at the same time, you're going to do more damage by helping them. Some may say that this was due to the helplessness as he felt his sister being raped, and he was just left to witness it. I didn't find that anywhere. That was kind of just, like, my thought process. Again, because, you know, he was that helpless nine-year-old watching his sister get raped, and now he's making the men helpless, raping their wives. I wonder what his tipping point was. Like, what could be the uh, tipping point? Because, like you said in the beginning, he was supposed to be on the right track. So, what led him astray? So, I wonder if he was having, like, marital discourse with his wife. And, like, you know, they would have a fight. So, he'd go and, you know, do this um, to other couples to kind of um, feed his anger towards his wife. With the podcast that I listened to... um, they didn't really say there is like anything beyond the typical like marriage bout, but there were times in their relationship that like certain things like the birth of his child that would cause him to stop. So like the happy things that were going on in his life caused him to stop. But like other than that, his wife had supposedly had no idea that any of this was going on. So it's kind of hard to like correlate what was going on in his mind there was a moment where they said his arm was broke and like the killings had stopped for so long because like obviously his arms broke like he can't do anything but the ex-brother-in-law said he does not recall the time where his his arm was broke at all 
so that could just be like a rumor. After leaving the victims in fear, he would taunt them with phone calls for weeks after, leaving it almost impossible to recover from their trauma. He would just like call them and like breathe in the phone or whisper something and then hang up. So it was like, not only did he do that traumatic event to you, but now he's going to keep tormenting you. As fear spread through Sacramento, people began securing their homes, making it harder for him to complete his terror. Due to the extra security put in place by the homeowners, Joseph moved to a nearby town like Stockton, Modesto, San Jose, and other small towns in between there. His wife actually moved there for business at one point, so he was easily able to go back and forth and be like, you know, undetected. This was a big deal since he was unfamiliar with the area. His attacks were so scattered between towns that it was really hard to pick a pattern to the attacks, which at the time made investigators scratch their heads, unable to come up with any solid leads. And due to the lack of communication, the attacks weren't connected until it was too late. All the break-ins, burglaries, rapes, and murders took a toll on Joseph's health as he got older. There were months where his crimes would stop, usually three months at a time. This allowed the communities to begin to feel at ease again and drop their guard. Of course, as we know now, the sense of freedom was short-lived. In July of 1979, D'Angelo's career with law enforcement ended as he was caught shoplifting from a local store. He attempted stealing dog repellent and a hammer, which, you know, little did they know, catching him stealing these items probably saved somebody's life. With this criminal activity, the Auburn Police Department suspended and ultimately fired Joseph, also landing him six months probation period, where he was closely monitored by police. This was enough to put his killings on hold out of fear of being caught. However, this would not be the last break in his crime spree, but it surely made him pay closer attention to his crimes. The East Area Rapist was laid to rest with the chapter of his life closing. The communities nearby breathed a breath of fresh air until the original Night Stalker was reborn. Staying clear of Auburn, where Joseph was living at the time, he drove to Los Angeles to commit even more hom- homicidal crimes. The first victims within this new area escaped leaving him feeling empty. Therefore, he returned to kill again and again. This time, he attacked and killed a local doctor and his wife. Um, Time passed by with more murders and more break-ins, but by the time August of 1980 rolled around, he had murdered a couple in L.A., which created the first link between the Night Stalker and the East Area Rapist. Up until this point, he had been raping and murdering innocent people all over California without any of his crimes being connected. He was becoming careless over time, you know, kind of got cocky and confident and started making small little mistakes because he thought he could get away with it. His original attacks were well thought out, planned ahead of time. And he avoided simple mistakes, but after getting away with them for so long, he finally slipped up. With his latest killing, he used the same type of knot that he used in the east side of California. So he must have tied one of his victims up the same way he tied his victims in the other part of California. And this little tiny slip up was enough for investigators to be like, hmm, let's connect these. 
But unfortunately, it was too late. After a total of eight years of horrendous crimes, he suddenly stopped. His kill count was up to 12 innocent people, as well as over 50 sexual assaults and hundreds of break-ins. Nobody knows for sure why he stopped. However, with his first daughter being born around this time, people can only speculate. This, however, was not enough to get him to quit killing altogether, where he continued killing in 1986. At last, in 2018, a distant family member wanted some answers about their family tree. And this was enough, as they submitted DNA to like find out who was on his family tree. This DNA was compared to the saved DNA within their case files. And after many of tests, they had had their guy. Joseph D'Angelo Jr. was revealed to the world as the Golden State Killer, or as the East Area Rapist as many known him. After interviews and later speculation, the police investigators also determined it was likely that he committed the Vasilla Ransacker crimes as well. By the trial in 2020, Joseph pled guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder and kidnapping, avoiding the death penalty and trading in the rest of his life. Uh, Behind well, bars. It's like all this dirt right now. Yeah. To many, this did not begin to repay the pain and suffering of his victims. However, it meant this monster could never harm another soul again. And I did hear that he would, like, call them even, I mean, not recently, as he's in jail, but, like, for years after, even when he wasn't active, he was still calling them. I mean, it's very likely. He just, he loved screwing with their heads. And then, yeah. like... Didn't he also, like, he's, like, in a wheelchair and all that, right? They say that that's just an act. Yeah, I thought they said that he was acting as an act. He was fine, and then he was caught, and now it's, oh, I'm such an old, brittle man. They say it's an act. They probably keep him in protective custody. Yeah, the idea of being woken up in the middle of the night, because he used to shine a light, a flashlight on them. Yeah. And like making it harder for you to see. Well that's why I keep a knife next to my bed, seriously. That's why That would just sound terrifying. Yeah. I mean the amount of stuff that he did though to mess with their head, like he would move items around, he would you know, make them feel like they were crazy. Like I don't know much about, like, psychiatry and psychology or whatever, whatever the psych word is. I don't know. It's too late. But, like, I feel like there has to be something. That's psychological torture, for sure. Yeah. It's crazy. But, you know, they, they found him. I didn't get to watch much of the trial, but... I know at one point, uh, people were laughing at him because they said that, yes, you did rape me, but, like, we took pity on you because your penis was small. <laughs> um, apparently, the whole courtroom just, like, broke out in laughter, which was, like, perfect because it probably, like, squished his ego. Shorts. When, when they, uh reported him too to the police they all reported that yes that's quite a defining character (laughs) i mean 
poor guy, but also like I'm looking at like um updated pictures from the time he was arrested until like there's a completely different complete different I wonder if this is I would assume that that's COVID because he's in a mask. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was arrested in 2020, so. He's got, a, like, a face shield on, so I'm assuming this is, like, if you go to our Facebook know, like page, we have, his... we have a picture of him as a little boy, and he was actually kind of cute. We do. <laughs> he looks we do. terrifying. He looks like a guy that would be in a scary movie. Yeah. Like Poltergeist or Amityville or something. I mean, and you gotta look back to like all the abuse that he witnessed. Now. I can't find. Oh, hold on. Yeah, and then there was oh, another. There's these a, letters. Do you see the picture of him when he's in his um uniform? Yes, I remember seeing that one. No. He wasn't a bad-looking guy for that time frame, you know. And from But his I, insides are ugly. His brain and his thought processes are... And his, his penis. Soul. And his penis. Well, time did not do any favors to him at all. And that's it for my podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. Yay. Yay. Um, be sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram. Whoop, whoop. Straight flexing. Oh, we also have Twitter. And we might eventually be on YouTube. Yeah. We're going to be all over the place, hopefully. Eventually. Be sure to like, share, comment. You know what to do. Be sure to do it. Bye. 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 Did you see they just did those, they just found out who the Zodiac Killer was? What? Oh, I saw something when they said the Zodiac Killer was found. It is not Ted Cruz. Uh, it says two, day, two days ago, Zodiac Killer's identity has been reported revealed. DNA points to looking. I don't know how much I believe on radar or online. Points and Air Force veterans.